0: it's richard at grassroots the minor hockey show podcast welcome back and welcome back to dean holden who has returned from the land of the foregone conclusion i don't know he's been out somewhere uh recovering from god knows what disease he had for a few weeks but uh dean you are alive and well
1: i'm alive <clears throat> i'm working my way towards
0: well we're uh, today we're talking about the. Um, the language of coaching in hockey. Uh, And the reason why we're talking about this is because so much of the time we've spent at Dean and I and with our guests, uh, we've thrown around a number of terms and we felt that it was time to define what those are because the language of coaching in this sport has changed enormously in the last, oh, I don't know, 10 years or so uh, with the research that has come about from various sources And um, I think I, you know, Dean and I have thrown this around at at some length, but we really do believe that coaches need to be aware of the terminology, how to use the things that we're talking about. Um, We're going to be talking about small area games, for instance. What exactly does that mean? What are you supposed to do with them? Where did this all start? Uh, Dean, you've seen, of course, as as an academic and, you know, finishing up your PhD in coaching, how the terminology in our sport has changed so much in recent years until i
1: until i started down the academic path in 2018 <clears throat> i came across some terminology that was foreign to me both to what you would consider traditional hockey um definitions and words but but more so some of the um academic research that was starting to filter its way into, into the um, you know the practitioners out in the, the rinks. And you know you and I have talked, as we said it was great length, length about this, and um, you and I are predisposed to trying to coach in, in the most effective, efficient, transferable way possible. And because of that, you know I, I, I've heard a lot about TGFU and certainly when I was teaching at Mount Royal, um, you know, back in the, um, I guess I started in the early 2012, 14-ish area. The, 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 the term TGFU came about from Left University. It, it, um, it started in the seventies or the eighties and it was exported, uh, through the Commonwealth into Australia. And they, they started to the term it game sense, made a few changes added to the definition, and it kind of spread from there and outward, Richard, and, and it kind of leads into some of the words we're going to use today. But but those the, the teaching game for understanding and game sense essentially mean you're going to use game-based methods to provide an environmental context for your players so that when they're training, there's a lot of um, cues and uh, things that the players can see and read in order to make decisions that are common to a game situation so instead of doing something in isolation like a drill in isolation where there's no pressure or there's an unrealistic placement of of the net or or where the players are and what happens you now start to make it a more realistic environment and that leads us into some of the terms that are you know like you say in the last 10 years starting to get a little bit of traction in, in coaching circles, such as ecological dynamics and the constraints led approach.
0: Well, now that you've mentioned TGFU, I think a a quick definition of, of what that means and where it came from, um, is in order TGFU, uh, teaching games for understanding came about from, I think, uh, the UK from England. Is that correct? Uh, and, uh, Physical education teachers in the school system were finding that kids were not taking physical education because they were doing drill-based, uh, deconstruct the skill. Here's how you hit a badminton bird. Hold your arm at such and such an angle, and then the kids are being turned off. So they they came up with a, a, a system, I guess you could call it, of dividing sports into certain kinds of. Uh, definitions hockey being an invasion sport much like soccer lacrosse uh, team handball uh, there's a bunch of them where you're trying to score a goal and invade a space and they, they they found that by providing the children in physical education classes access to the actual game and then manipulating the space or the constraints a word we're going to be throwing around a lot uh in the game that the gamification of the sport led to greater enjoyment of Mm. the activity and led to more kids wanting to be involved in physical education classes and as you've said dean uh tgfu has sprouted uh much like you know roots of a tree into numerous directions now it's just exploded into the terminology that we are going to be discussing here today and are very much applicable to the sport of hockey because hockey is probably the most chaotic of all the invasion sports with the possible exception of buskashi, which you know is a favorite of mine. That's the one played on horseback in Afghanistan where they take the carcass of a sheep or a goat and they're trying to throw it into a hole and they hammer each other on horseback and don't seem to be any rules. So that's where TGFU came from, not from Boskashi, but from physical education classes. And now how do we apply it to our sport of hockey? Why are we applying it to our sport of hockey? And I'm sure you would agree, Dean, for the same reason or reasons that those physical educators in the UK Wanted to involve more kids in their classes and get them more engaged. We need to do more of that kind of thing in hockey to keep kids involved. And then at the higher levels, talking about, you know, AAA, you know, U15, U18, and into junior, how do we apply the principles of gamification, if you want to call it that, to teaching power play, to teaching four checks? to teaching breakouts to teaching regroups etc.
1: Well and I agree I think the you know the purpose behind TGFU was like you said to increase enjoyment which is the three letter word fun which seems to elude a lot of today's practices. Yeah. And when you put it in contrast to the word drill and we've talked about this before in a pod where I think the etymology uh, on the etymology side, it comes from a military um, context where it's repetitive patterns to develop rote memorization. Um, so you don't have to think you just act yes and you default back to that habit uh, under extreme pressure, which in the military is, you know, there's bombs and missiles and stuff flying around and don't think do. Right. And so right. It, these are two entirely different contexts, and it's sad that sport and I do it myself sometimes refer to you know a game as a battle it's you know it's it's not it's nowhere near the same, but we 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 mistakenly use those terms and i think I think that um in Canada with hockey, that drill mentality really did start genuinely from a military background because you had the sport, um, you know, operating within armed forces, you had former military people, uh, working as coaches. A lot of the players were former, um, uh, military people. Like there is a real heavy influence on, on, uh, the drill part of it. So TGFU was born out of uh, a sense of necessity because we don't work hockey. We mm-hmm. play hockey, right? We, we shouldn't drill it. We should play it. And as you said, um, the the, the fun element is, it needs to be present to retain your participants and to grow your participants. And I think this is where, if you put it into a more uh, global hockey sense, um, you know, obviously, Hockey Canada has has tried to um, build more. Um, recruitment into their timbit level or initiation program level and and uh, usa hockey has tried to do the same with their uh, american development model so both these countries are looking to increase the fun and they're really trying to push more realistic and fun game environments to the coaches and instead of running a, a 60 minute practice full of Of robotic pattern drills. They're encouraging players or coaches to consider their players perspective. Is this any fun? Should you not put some sort of a game like element into your practice to uh, entice people into your program, retain people in your program and maintain that? And that's, that's across all ages, because even, even uh, pro players today, Really they're just, they're just big kids with, with big, bigger wallets, right? They love to play. Um, they will do the work, and there is work involved, but by and large, play is a huge factor in attracting anybody to sport
0: the The line that I threw out at various minor hockey associations over the last few years, particularly here my in my six years in in the GTA, uh, has been that I will do the research i will dig up the terminology i will find ways to educate you on what these things mean and how to apply them so now we're going we're we're going to sort of slither from tgfu to some of the terms that uh, if you were to read the papers, you would probably be bored silly. And I find myself skimming them a lot of times looking for for certain words or phrases and the rest of it. I'm just going, I, I don't want to know the math involved. I'm not interested there. Some of it's interesting. Most of it is not to me. I'm not you know working on my Ph.D. Um, but let's look at some of the terminology that we are finding out have direct application to what we should be doing in coaching. The one that jumps out at me is ecological or ecological, ecological dynamics, which is really, really means. And I know Rob Gray, we had him on the podcast last spring. Uh, How we learn to move is the name of his book. I should be getting a cut for keep mentioning his book.
1: And he has a new book out now. Yes, I've
0: I've got that. I just started it uh, a few days ago um he talks a lot about the ecology of various things related to how movement takes place we don't want to belabor that with our listeners we'll put you to sleep so we're going to talk about what is the ecology what is ecological dynamics of a sport it's really talking about the environment in which we place our kids our players our athletes right dean
1: it's a training environment. That's right. It's the context of, of what we're trying to achieve. And and uh, as coaches understand what we want to achieve, identify it, and then translate that for our players into uh, a dynamic environment where they can hopefully, effectively and efficiently um, be placed in those same situational um, dilemmas where they have to figure out how to solve these problems. and. There's multiple ways to to solve each problem, right? but the player needs to be put in those situations so they can, um, you know, start to exercise their independent thought and creative creative mind.
0: Now, we've both, uh, you know, read a ton of stuff about soccer and rugby are the two sports where there's been a lot of research on how to apply ecological approaches and of course your buddy John your your you call him your uh, what do you call him in your one of your papers you call him your uh, critical friend your critical yes, friend yes, yes. the, the uh,
1: colombian is my critical friend
0: john the colombian john castro john we've had him on the show a couple of times he's m- mostly a soccer guy but has applied those soccer principles to hockey but in soccer they don't have the constraints of boards in soccer you could practice Uh, in a park and do what you want with five by five grids or 10 by 10 grids or 20 by 20 grids in hockey, we are stuck with the boards. And if we were to go onto a hockey rink that had no ice markings, no lines, no circles, no dots, I think coaches would be lost. Like (laughs) how do you define a space uh, when you have no markings to guide you? So really in ecological dynamics, we're talking about, How do we change the environment or how do we change the constraints? This is another word we're going to be throwing around a lot um, in our practices to make them fun, uh, to make learning more enjoyable and to make it more applicable. So let's throw out some examples of ecological dynamics in a practice. Over to you.
1: Well, I I think we should start maybe by defining the word constraint. Okay, go for it. So, I mean, just if you think about what, what does the word constraint mean, you know, to bind, to, um, I don't know, like to limit. To, to limit, yeah, I like that, to limit. So, as a coach, you're in charge of the constraints to a certain point. As a coach, you're also constrained, as you just said, by what you have at hand. Do you have a half ice practice? Do you have a 15 minutes of full ice and 45 minutes of half ice? Do you have a full practice? a uh, full ice practice for the entire time? How many players do you have? How many right. goalies? What, what's your equipment? Do you have extra nets? If it's a half ice practice and each team has four goalies or two goalies, so four goalies, does the rink have two extra nets? Do they have shooter tutors in case the goalie's not there? Um, you know, whatever other things that you need in order to uh, run your practice there's, you know, the fixed constraints, and then there's the optional constraints that you as a coach now can layer in over top of what, what exists. So from a, a constraint approach, you need to identify what your what your purpose is, and then start to layer in your, your uh, rules, your expectations, your, um, you know, basically the philosophy that you have as a coach, and meld those together to try to create uh, an, an ecologically dynamic environment so a realistic environment where all those cues that are in a game are going to also be found in your practice So your players are playing in a, a mimicked game within practice so that they can start to make their own independent decisions on what to do to solve the problems around the purpose of what you're trying to do so I mean, you know, pick a pick an idea and, you know, what do we want to do here today? Coaches, what do we need to do? And okay, how can we make the environment look like a game, but we're really going to emphasize this particular uh, tactical point or whatever it is you're you're going after?
0: There was a coach last season in the association out here I was working with who came out to practice and I had been watching the practice before. So I, I had two of them or three of them back to back to back. And he showed up and and his assistant coach, he had the pucks. His assistant coach showed up and the coach turned to his assistant coach and said, Uh, have you got the, the cones? And the guy went, Oh no, sorry, I forgot him at home. And he was in a panic because they didn't have cones. So to to do the patterned exercises and go around a space. He didn't have nobody brought the cones so when when we're talking about constraints you know having cones to go around is an extreme example of a constraint that is of no real value we 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 know this is not just you and me talking There's a lot of research and a lot of people talking in the in the academic community about uh, the the deconstruction of skills and patterned approaches and how they do not lend themselves to an improvement in the sport. And that's a that's a constraint that we need to do without. It's like the whistle. You know, do we really need the whistle all the time? Do we need the whistle to start? So that's another kind it, of hey, The whistle
1: strokes my ego and makes me feel powerful, Richard. Uh, yeah, I know. And, but, I, and I haven't really used the whistle much since um, like almost 2000. So right. I agree. Like we, right. we don't need it.
0: So there are certain constraints that coaches have become so acclimatized to and so accustomed to that uh, to, when they're not around, it's a panic. That's I all agree. I know. All I know is I have, I have a dozen cones. I have a dozen cones sitting in my garage. They've been in there for years. Since I I have over 300
1: cones, and I'm trying to find (laughs) unsuspecting suckers to give them away.
0: I wonder if I can make some kind of an art project out of this dozen little light cones that I can, you know, I don't know. Um, So that's that's an example of a constraint. You mentioned a bunch of others. And all of the constraints that we come up with in order to create this ecology of a, a dynamic environment. We're talking about time space, and as you said, intention. How much time do we have? What kind of space do we have? What is the purpose of what we're trying to do?
1: Well, that's you know coach dependent on their understanding of their own philosophy and what's important, and uh, I know you're working on you know as am i we're 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 both working on our own interpretations of what are the most important things in hockey so that we can prioritize and use our time efficiently instead of wasting it on just reactionary coaching. Like, oh, you know, last night this didn't work, so now we got to spend most of the practice doing this. You know, and instead of, you know, creating a skeleton outline of the season, you know, it goes back into even into periodization and planning. And um, if you have a deep understanding of the game, you know what's important. You don't panic when, you know, something else looks amiss you is to make a mental note, but look, this is more important in the long run over the course of a season. We know how we prioritize our, our intentions. And then we, we stick to the plan and we don't react. We're, we're proactive in our planning so that when stuff goes sideways, we have the confidence to stick to our our plan and and get through it.
0: They, I I read a great definition in one of these that I yanked out of one of these uh, research documents. Um, It was a quote from one of the researchers who said, the gardener cannot actually grow tomatoes. She can only foster an environment in which plants do so. Right. So we're we have to create the environment to try to draw out education. Teaching is the drawing out. Not always. I mean, sometimes it is the putting in. But, you know, the kids heads are not vials. You just pour information into the top. Um, we have to draw out some of the learning uh, from the coaches as well as from the um, uh, from the players. But I'm giving you a practical example of a, a coach I know in an organization I worked with. He's a really, really strong coach, very efficient. He gets it. He's one of those people who just gets it. And I think he was coaching, might have been 14-year-olds or 15-year-olds, triple A, and a friend of his son who was play, who was coaching, who was playing junior in the area came to him one day and said, can I come out to your practices to practice? And the guy said, well, why? These kids are 14 years old or 15 years old and you're 18. He says, because my junior coach, we stand around, we do system stuff because he believes in the system and they're really boring and I need to move and practice. I'm get, my feet are getting cold. So that coach and junior had created an environment, whether the team wins or loses, that was just players didn't like the practices.
1: Well, and it goes back to what we talked about at the start, the the purpose behind TGFU. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's 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 gotta be fun, it's gotta be engaging to entice people to want to play and to 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 keep them there. And you know, USA hockey, when they when they looked at their creating their ADM model. I'll I'll never forget the. Um, it was
0: two thousand and nine, uh, I think it started. Yeah, and it's yeah. so it's
1: been around for I think twelve years now. 13 as years, of yeah. well, 2023. Geez, I'm still thinking it's twenty twenty two, but I can't remember. But I I've, I've heard an interview and and you know there was Ken Martell, Bob Mancini, a few other guys talking about it. I, I don't know which guy it
0: was. Roger Grillo but, probably was one of those. And Grillo,
1: yeah, Grillo was like there's yeah. this group, this core mm-hmm. group and some one of them had, had 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 talked about um just in order for us to grow USA hockey and their their goal was and remains to be that overall they want to supply 51% of all the players in the NHL. That was kind of their overall mandate, if I'm not mistaken. And mm-hmm. and I don't know where they started at, you know, 15%, 30 or 17% back, you know, in 2009, even before that, when they were the genesis of the idea was floating around. And what they decided to do was they focused on retention. Yes. So instead of focusing on growth and recruitment, they focused on retention. And, and the biggest thing that I took away from the various interviews and stuff that I've read, is that, you know, they, they did surveys, they asked coaches, they asked players, they asked parents, mm. you know, what can we do to keep you involved in the game, you know, and a lot of factors come out and, and, you know, Heather Mannix has some great stuff. Who's done some work with USA hockey and she's, uh, I've heard her on some podcasts, read some of her material and and it, and it comes back to fun. I mean, there's lots of other factors. There's cost, there's opportunity, there's availability, um, you know, there's um, awareness and, and and there's a whole long list of factors, but USA hockey in their wisdom was very forward thinking. And, and instead of trying to grow the game from the bottom and, and spend all the time there, they thought if we, it's almost like the, that baseball movie, if you build it, they will come. But when you build it, it's fun. They were, they were focused on retention. How do we keep our membership and, and instead of having them come in and try it and leave, how can we just retain? And as we retain, we're going to naturally start to grow bigger and it'll recruit on, you know, on the fun, on the fun foundation. And so I think that that's a real important consideration to for everybody to keep in mind. And that's, this, that's what this junior player is basically saying to you. Yes, yes my my drill like practices in junior suck and my feet are cold. I'm not having fun. Right. I just want to come out and have fun. And at the end of the day, we all play hockey for fun. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I I've had players myself, um, come to me and, and say, geez, coach, uh, when are we going to play Spartan box? When are we going to do one-on-one sequence? When are we going to do, you know, some of these game activities? So, you know, in, in preference in in to to these unrelated drilled kind of activities right so i think coaches have to always remember their clientele base and that's their the player and that's the, the players want to be engaged and have fun
0: we have long gone by the um sage on the stage rather than the guide on the side where the coach it's a coach-centered environment you could say that perhaps about other sports uh basketball football um, baseball, well, baseball is not an invasion sport, but where they're, the 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 coaches are not just influential but guide the game; they pretty much run the game. Anyway, let's let's just go to from the word constraint. We go to C L A, which is a constraints led approach. So when we're gamifying, if if we are going to gamify, or even if you're not going to gamify, you're going to drillify, but your drillify has constraints so it may be a patterned approach which we don't care for much but you're saying a constraints led approach to coaching means dean
1: well you know and I, i'm i'm still i'm thinking about the, you know the constraints led approach and and as we evolve from what we just talked about with the the element of fun and that sort of thing and within the constraints led approach um again it's terminology right so we've already defined constraints and you know leadership and what way we're going to do it so every one of these um monikers if you want to call them that have have taken what has come before them and have added to them or specialized a little bit in them so a constraints led approach to me it's it's really now it's focused on the constraint so to me as a coach, you need to understand what's your intention and purpose in today's practice. Look back at your skeleton outline and, and become more aware of what are the things that we want to draw out of the environment. And when, once we know that, then we can start to build the environment in order to draw that out of our, our athlete, to put them into that learning environment and the contextual cues in a more realistic environment from a drill, And at the same time, try and keep in mind that that element of fun. And and, and the other thing about the fun part, either in TGFU game sense, ecological dynamics or CLA is when something is fun, it's more memorable than when it's not fun. And when you're attempting as a coach or a teacher to impart learning, learning is not necessarily easily measurable in the moment. It's measurable down the road. It's like you're only dealing with a snapshot in time at the time. So I remember reading a great book by, um, it's Chip and Dan Heath and it's called made to stick why some ideas survive and others die. And it's an older book. I think it, you know, it could be 10, 20 years old now. Um, And they've written a number of books, the Heath brothers, on on concepts like this. But in order to help build an environment in which learning will occur, you need to make learning sticky. You need to make it memorable. So you could have a completely crappy practice and, you know, like a bag skate or whatever, like something that is really is almost abusive and that will stick. There is that, but, but what you're, what are you learning from that? You're, you're learning that practice sucked. I hate bag skates. I didn't learn a thing. If hockey's like this, I want out. If you put them into a fun game, like environment where they have fun, there's elements of competition, you've identified your purpose, you're working toward it. And it's, you know, it's, it's moving. It's fast paced. It's the coach. How come practice is over already? Right. Like, that's where we want to strive to make those practices memorable, you know, and, and having elements of fun at the forefront, competition, um, engagement, not a lot of standing around, thinking, forcing people out of their comfort zone. I mean, to me, I think constraints led approach, when you prioritize your constraint, now you're really, as a coach, you're focused on what is my intention and how do I best put the environment together so that my players can have some sticky learning experiences that are going to transfer to a game.
0: Now, one of the things I've seen over the years has been uh, coaches using, using, you know, game type activities uh, that have some rules have some constraints. One of the things I threw out at the coaches, remember at the conference in in June, Dean in, in Whitby, was the use of colored pucks that had, that would promote certain rules. A yellow puck in the game meant doing this, a green puck in the game meant doing this and, and how you had to switch and force you to think a little bit differently. Uh, And I know some of the coaches were, were applying that, but when we're talking about coaches reflecting on uh, what did they learn? What do they recall from their playing days? And it's, they remember the bad stuff, certainly the bag skates, which of course are nonsense. But they they also remember which coaches had that sense of fun, just playing. They 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 just want to, you know, they they enjoyed it when they played pee wee or they played bantam or midget. They they enjoyed the environment, they enjoyed the room. It was a fun environment. I'm going to segue from that to variability, because. That's another word we hear a lot. And I, I, I see a lot of coaches have seen a lot of coaches who, uh, will start practice with the same drill, the same activity all the time. You know, it's like a neutral zone, you know, pass a, the kid across from you, skate this route, get a path, two kids going at a time, three kids going at a time, the same freaking drill Over and every practice starts that way. You can almost see the players' eyes rolling. Oh yeah, yeah, yes, Coach. I remember that drill. That's uh, that's great. So, a constraints led approach has to involve a number of other things. There has to be variability in what you do. If you have constraints that you put into a small area game or a drill, if you're inclined to do drills, but there's no variability, there's no change in approach, then it becomes a pattern. Mm-hmm. Of sorts. Mm-hmm. And there's a ton of research supporting the, the essential element of variability in practice to force your players to think and react differently under different kinds of constraints.
1: Well, I mean, I think you could still use the same opening event in your practice. I'm not going to use the word drill. It's a dirty word. Activity. Activity. Um, the uh what was his name the the, john kessel usa men's volleyball who retired a couple of years ago during covid had a great blog and one of the the um the words that he kind of created was grill a game-like drill and he was trying to use that that vocabulary because we're talking about language of coaching to try to enter it into the coach's stream of consciousness that Let's get away from drills and let's try to work toward work more toward games, like meaning TGFU, um, game right. sense, ecological dynamics, constraints that approach. So he was trying to push the more game-like and realistic elements for problem solving with the players. So they're not being circus performers and performing a rote pattern um, based on the coach's whiteboard. And um, you go here now when this happens because invasion games are inherently chaotic and unpredictable i mean certainly we have rules like offside and penalties and and things around that but what a coach should be doing is is understanding that yeah there are certain constraints or rules within the game but let's let's make our practice time as reflect that as closely as possible because as you said you know we have to train in a, in a situation that mimics the, the end, the end result of what we want, the performance. So even if you can't turn to the left and handle the puck on your backhand or make a good pass or whatever, you know, if if you, all you do is isolate that and just perform that with no pressure, no need to have your head up before you get to the puck, to shoulder check to understand where you are in time and space. Um, There's you don't have any anybody supporting you, you don't have anybody pressuring you. I mean now it to me that's almost the it is the essence of a drill you're you're taking away and dumbing down all the cues and the reads that you need to do in a game, and you know what you do it all practice and versions of that, and you oh yeah, you know little Johnny looks a lot better at the end of practice. You put little Johnny in a game all of a sudden, there's nine other players, and it's chaos. And little Johnny, he goes back to his old habits and he's panicking and he, nothing is, like learning hasn't been sticky. You know what I mean? And I just think that we need to try to continue to push the coaches like John Kessel did into embracing more of an open mind and thinking, how can I, what am I achieving in my drill? Like, what's my intention here? How can I make it more realistic? How can I add a few constraints that are going to make it look more like a real game. And, and the big thing is the decision making process within those drill, like games, grills, whatever you want to call them, need to be decided upon by the player in the moment. So you can't always say, get the puck here, go there and do this, because that might not occur in the game, you've got to add well, what happens if that if that's not possible, Coach? What do I do? So you've got to try and and give the player a realistic opportunity to adapt under pressure, so that they can come up with a solution.
0: When we're talking about, uh, I mean, we, we're loath to use the word drill. So uh, you call them events. I'll call them activities. Activities, activities, Ac- activities works nicely. Uh, and we're we're going into the use of small area games, or small sided games, or short sided games, or uh, not, not S- to
1: be confused with short
0: sighted games. Shorts, no, not sighted, sided, uh, and and these these the application of using constraints and the ecology, the ecological environment in which we do it in hockey. We're we're constrained. There's that word again by the boards, as I said. This but could be a
1: drinking podcast.
0: <laughs> Every time you hear the word constraint, constraint. you have another take a, beer. Take yeah. a shot take and a shot. Okay. Uh, and just like Alan Iverson with his word practice. Practice. We talking about practice. Uh, so when we're talking about using small area games or small sided games, small sided games is really kind of a a soccer term, but. As you know, you and I were talking before we came on the on the podcast this morning that uh, uh, in soccer you can you can use any area of field in a park, in a backyard, in a front yard, anywhere to practice soccer because it's not limited by the actual physical environment. Whereas in hockey we are very limited. Uh, so we use small area games. Or small-sided games. In other words, we're two against two, one against one, three against three. Because we can't go more than that. I mean, you could go four against four across the ice, five against five across the ice with younger kids. But as soon as they get to about 10, 11, 12, it's it's no longer works. Particularly if you're looking to develop certain kinds of um, approaches to the game. You know, you're trying to teach certain principles uh, or skills so now we go into small area games small sided games and the stg which is a more recent one which means
1: well this is a a term that when i first met john when i was coaching at the university of calgary in the early 2000s um you know john brought his combined hockey and soccer background and I don't, you know, to be honest, I don't even remember if I knew what a small area game or a small sided game was yet at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly, he probably introduced that concept to me and we used that terminology of small area game. And so that first year that we met and we worked together, you know, he gradually explained it over time. and, And I mean, I was very much still in the drills and skills era of my evolution. And, um, you know, he gradually, um, explained it. I gradually understood it. Um, you know, fed it little bits to me at a time, didn't try to overwhelm me. And I think because he took that, that, um, that approach where it, it was just a bit, a bit at a time and not everything all at once, um, it made it more palatable. And, and during the course of that year, I came to understand what a small area game was and started to appreciate it. We did an awful lot. We did off ice training four days a week after our on ice training, uh, Monday to Thursday, and we used a lot of handball games to learn principles of play and concepts. And we could walk through some of our our systems, or as John would like to refer to it, shapes rather than systems. Right. And right. and and I'll tell you, like that first year actually turned out to be. real steep learning curve for me and it was challenging and Mm. um, one of the biggest things though that i learned was when when people talk about learning there seems to be this um, conception that learning isn't fun necessarily learning is a struggle well the process the process and and so if you if you apply that to on ice at practice if you if you, if, if kids enjoy your practice, sometimes a coach might go, you know, geez, well, did they really learn Is all all we, all we did was play shinny today. All we did was do this today. Did they, you know, they had fun, but I didn't really teach. I, I, I didn't really teach. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. Sage on the stage. Right. Are right you, are side, you, right. or are you taking front and center with your whistle and, and dictatorial prescriptive approach? And what I found was, And I've noticed that since that year, you can still learn and learn a lot when you're having fun. And if you're playing a small area game and there's elements of competition and it's intentional and it's purposeful and you keep score and you hold the the winners and the losers accountable, uh, you celebrate the winners and, you know, maybe the losers have to receive some sort of a a token punishment. They got to do a few sit-ups, push-ups, forward rolls, over and back whatever. I mean, that's still one thing that I I, I have not yet been able to separate out is, is the carrot and the stick. I still think there's some value in both reward and punishment when you're trying to highlight behavior and extinguish behavior. So I would need to think about that more another time, but you have to have an element of fun and you can have fun in practice and use games and achieve a lot of sticky learning for later. So for me, that was the big standout. And after that year, John continued to feed me stuff. And I started to think about it. And I, in our small area games that John had created so many wonderful games that he had started on his own coaching journey in the eighties and and through soccer, primarily he, I, 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 I started to look at his body of work. And the one thing that I, I was starting to, developed my a a a great understanding was in hockey in general is when i look at the principles of play there's four on offense and defense and the one where everything starts is transition everything starts out of a transition and i saw the numbers on the ihf website um they looked at i think it was the salt lake olympics in 2002 <laughs> And they they did a uh, hockey USA, did a wonderful study with the IHF. You can look mm-hmm. it up online. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, how much time uh, did a, was a puck on the stick? I think in the gold medal game, Joe Sackick had like a minute and three seconds or 20 minute and 20 seconds. You know, these are the top players in a 60 minute stop time game. So there is there's transitions, there's turnovers, there's shots, there's time on tape and and i started to go you know transitions really important and i started to look at johns small area games and i said to him one day i think the reason that your game like curriculum is so effective is you include elements of transition in almost every one of your games i said i think we should change it from a small area game to at the time I called it a smart transitional game. So, you know, obviously I changed the S is now smart because we're putting the onus on the players to solve the problems within the game, not a coach led pattern behavior directed approach. It's a more of a, a constructive approach where constructivist approach where the, the player has to keep all the contextual cues in, 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 in in relation to what they're going to see and what they're going to do, there's an element of transition both on offense and defense, and it's a game. And and so John and I have kind of kept that term to ourselves, but a smart transitional game, in our opinion, is a step up from just a small area game because current definitions of a small area game seem to include a lot of, I'm going to call them activities, I'm not going to call them games, where there might not be any directionality involved. Therefore, there's no transition involved. And transition well, is such a big principle in hockey, Richard. Like, I think it's the number one principle because it's on both offense and defense. And again, going back to some of Igor's work when we, we got the percentages of what actually occurs in a game, there's tons of data out there, or maybe not tons, but there's data out there from the IHF, from Hockey USA on how many transitions occur in a game I think even George Kingston looked at it in the 70s, did uh-huh. his, his, some of his work. And when there's a transition, that means there's a turnover. So it goes from possession to no possession. And I know we're, we're going to talk about a zero, one, two situation, but that's, that's to me the genesis of a smart transitional game. And books like um, that Hockey USA book in the early 2000s by Paul mm-hmm. Willits that has all these games in it. John and I went through it and, and I, I don't want to be disrespectful to anybody. However, our definition of a smart transitional game when applied against the activities in that book mean that that book is activities for the most part. There's not a lot of directionality. There's not a lot of transition And our, our typical drills. We neuter transition. We remove transition on a one-on-one what do we want? Well, we want to break up the one-on-one, and we focus on the defensive side of the game. So the defenseman whacks the puck off the defense off the attacking player's stick, and then what goes to the back of the line. The forward gives up, goes to their line. The goalie gives up. There's lots of loose pucks laying around. The coach blows the whistle. The next rep starts. Does that happen in a game? Like like in a game, you got to pursue that puck. You got to jump onto the transition, buddy. Like and anyway, we- I'm on a rant, but. It, does tick me off we, we we need to be aware of the relevance and the importance of transition and we we need to bloody well plan for it in our games
0: when we're talking about using small area games small sided games well, whatever you want to call them In practice and the constraints that you want to place in them in order to highlight certain principles obviously the principle of transition as you're talking about now being paramount um, coaches tend to create these games where uh, it's going to be two against two across the ice let's say and uh, when you lose the puck then uh, one player goes off another player or you have a joker or a rover or common player, you know, standing at the blue line. And when you get the puck, you're allowed to pass. So there is no transition, but when coaches step back and observe, which they don't do, which is another terminology we need to to talk about, observe what happens in their games. If you are playing at an age group where there are, Let's say fifteen minute periods, so a forty five minute game in a fifteen minute period, which would have, let's say fifteen shifts with you know 10, 11, 12 year olds, you're more likely to have one minute shifts than not. Um, if you have fifteen shifts, how many times is the puck turned over to the other team in that in that in those fifteen shifts? Let's say conservatively, four times per shift
1: oh richard i've got uh, the numbers I've i know okay a, but
0: i'm just saying okay Dean, i understand higher, but it's probably higher. way higher but if, at a lower hundreds, level
1: i'm talking hundreds in I know. all right
0: i i know i'm talking about at a at a, at a lower level like uh 8 9 10 year olds 11 year olds 12 year olds it's going to be obviously higher once the kids get up to a decent level of of competitive hockey it may be a little bit lower so let's say five per shift. So even five per shift, where the puck is turned over to the other team, my guess my guess would be it's going to be twice that, but five per shift, that's 75 turnovers in a period, which is 225 transitions in a game, which is probably half of what it actually is.
1: Two- on, that's, Richard, like seriously, dude, like I did this last <laughs> year at U15. Yeah. At year right. 15 I did yeah. this last year. Yeah, I'm going off of memory. I had close to 700, 800 transitions. Whoa! In, in three periods, it was 12, 12, 15. That was oh. our periods Ooh. stop
0: time. That's bad coaching, man. Come on, jeez. Say. I, I have
1: done this. <laughs> I have, I have, I have gone to games at different ages and different mm. levels. At the younger ages, there's less turnovers and less transitions because they just don't. They nobody has the puck. They're right. chasing. Right. But as you get older, and they start to have a little bit of a, an ability to to carry a puck and make and receive passes, the the numbers go up. I mean, I've done it with my own U fifteen team this year. So U fifteen last year, U fifteen this year, supposedly a, a more competitive group mm-hmm. this year. No, like the numbers don't hundreds. Lie. Okay, like it's yeah, it, and that's where I think a coach should go and study their own team take a video yeah and go back and look at it take the hour and and do it because i think we're doing a disservice if we think it's five a shift like christ i will do five in the first 10 seconds buddy
0: okay all right so i'm wrong let's say it's a whole lot more my point is and i was hoping to get to it that (laughs) if we're if we're doing if we're doing This is a two-hour podcast just for those of you who want to go
1: get another coffee.
0: Yeah, if if we're doing small area games, small-sided games, that you have to build into it, what are you doing on transition? You have the puck, you've lost the puck, but the puck, is the puck loose? Because there's a percentage of the game where, like I think the studies show like 35% of the game where the puck is just loose. It's just yeah, 30, sitting, yeah,
1: like 33, 33, 33, 33. 33. 34, got it, 30. you've got it. Nobody's yeah. got
0: it. Nobody's got it. So if nobody's got it, what are your players doing? You know, what are the, what are the constraints you're putting in or the rules, if you want to call it that you're, that you're embedding into your small area game in order to address the fact that we had the puck, we lost the puck. Where did we lose the puck in our zone around our net behind our net? In their zone, what are your players doing? What are you asking them to do? What do you want them to do? What do you expect them to do based on how the game is played at your level? Not how the game is played when you're watching an NHL game on TV. Mm-hmm. Okay, Those guys have had that drilled into them since they were eight years old. They're now 30 years old. They've played hundreds of Upon hundreds of games and practices, they've seen every drill and small area game in existence. We can't even talk about them in the same language. When we're talking about the language of coaching, what are we doing in our practices to address those kinds of things? What kinds of constraints? What are the ecolog- ecological dynamics involved? Uh, what are the roles you expect your players to? to employ, and do you know what they are? What are their roles? I don't mean right wing versus centre. What are their roles?
1: Well, you go, that statement to me leads into principles of play and understanding for four offensive principles and the four defensive principles. Yes. And, yes. and the commonalities between them, transition yes. on both, support on both, pressure on both, and yes. then puck possession, obviously, if you're on offence, and then stall contain if you're on defence. So, but if you look at them in order of how it happens and how a game flows, if there's, if nobody's got the puck, but your team is more likely to get the puck, your teams need to start to think, yes, probably going to get the puck. So therefore it's um, out of transition is emerging puck control. Then you want to achieve support and now you can pressure conversely on the defensive side, you realize the other team's probably going to get it. What's got to happen? Yes. So on a transition, stall and contain so that you can assess the situation, what's going to happen. The closest player, and this goes into the four playing roles, the closest defensive player might now think that, can I contain and, and stall and contain? Or do I can I pressure the puck carrier? Correct. Then support. If I see support, then I can pressure. If I don't see support, I need to contain. So these two principles of play, these four aspects are lined up against each other. But in my mind, how it's written in the hockey Canada manuals, it doesn't start with transition. John and I believe it should be written starting in transition because everything comes out of transition and you know, how a coach can, can, can develop more of these realistic situations. is like the one-on-one example I gave, you know, You don't just don't don't let your in this case drill end after the defenseman sweeps his stick and knocks the puck off the forward stick and both of you quit and give up and go to the end of the line. Right. And the goalie, you know, then has to shift his focus to something else. Doesn't happen. Like you need to build in that element of transition, that principle of transition, which so, is hard
0: to do, Dean. No, it's not. That, no, for BS. most coaches, for most, it's BS. Uh, most coaches, I think, find that really hard because they don't that's really because understand. because their
1: coach education system sucks, and we we give them drills and we All tell right. them perspective.
0: Agreed, right. but I, I I think that they're they're limited by what they've been exposed to what they've been educated on. And uh they, they resort to, you know, the long list. I mean, I've provided coaches with dozens upon dozens of small area games where they, they just pick one. Well, that looks like fun. Okay. Fun. Good. Great. But Excellent. how, do, how does that relate to the game? Well, and I think, I think
1: what you said right there, coaches don't know how to teach through small area games. Right. Right. Like, you know what? Put, put, a, put a game on for an hour, sit in the bench with coffee, make sure it's safe, mm. make sure it's fun. Shut up. There you yep. go, coach. Now you know how to teach through a small area game. Yes. Yes. Now <laughs> is it, is it, is it, is it as purposeful and intentional as a good coach would do? No. But if the coach if we removed all adults and just said, go play shinny, or here's your hour of ice, we'll just watch to make sure nobody gets hurt. There's no bullying the kids will construct a game yes. and they will play and they will monitor yes. the game themselves. Yes. And they, they don't need us freaking coaches. No. Or we're so referees in most cases. Well, yeah. And we're so yeah. deconstructivist and yeah. uh, our egos require yeah. that we have a whistle and we're controlling and power and, and a good coach is firm and forceful and yelling and talking all the time, like a bloody color and play by play guy combined on steroids with a yes. megaphone. Yeah. You know, shut the F up. Get out of there. Yeah. Remove yourself. The kids yeah. will figure it out on their own, and they'll actually become better. Like Gretzky on his outdoor rink. You know, we're losing that because of the climate and uh, the weather and the climate inside. Meaning, well, geez, we've got to have toys on the ice. We've got to do specialty clinics starting at six. We've got to do power skating, and we're we're going to monetize it. We're going to control it. There's all kinds of, of, uh, of, of things there. But I think what we need to do is is simply coaches add the element of transition into your practice by allowing the defenseman, Mm -hmm. when they get Mm -hmm. the puck, they've got to turn and and get up ice to a certain part of the ice to make an outlet pass to a coach or to start a rush the other way. And Tom Malloy does an amazing job with his Hockey Coaching ABC's website Mm
0: -hmm. and his book,
1: The Last Five Pages in that book, that are the most advanced, but I've run them with novice kids. There's tons of transitions built into that, and in my opinion, it's probably the best intermediate step that a drill based coach who's not sure of how to do these things and how to embrace game like coaching needs to buy Tom's book, get on his website, just look go on the website yeah. five of six pages. Well, he doesn't have all the stuff on the website. Yeah. Yeah. But he's got some great discussions. But if you can start to adapt and and take some of Tom's, I will call them grills, almost sags. Right. That is a great intermediate step for the coach now mm-hmm. to get those players into transition environments, so they're making decisions and they become they're go back and forth, back and forth, up and down the ice, and and you can modify that to cross ice if they're younger players, and uh, he does a great job explaining all that, and and then I think. The smart transitional game is another evolution above that, but baby steps.
0: So we've covered, you know, uh, CLA, constraints led approach. We've covered, uh, we've talked a little bit about observation. We've talked a little bit about ecological dynamics and variability. Can we just finish with one thing, a technique versus skill? Because we're a little bit confused uh, in general, in co- as in coaching, about well, I got to get my kids' technique better or their skill better. The difference is substantial, actually.
1: Well, I, you know, with the technique, that's more of a deliberate practice concept where yes. you're learning motor skills. Um, it's got to be age age dependent. Um, you've got to understand where the child is with their neurological development. They're not mini adults. They're not going to perform, you know, all these, um, techniques in isolation and look amazing when they, as they grow and they, they struggle, they lose coordination. They have to regain it back. But technique is just that, you know, that isolated ability, that motor skill, what's your level of motor skill when you look at skill um, as opposed to technique, it's how you perform that technique, but now in a, a realistic contested environment. In a competitive
0: environment. Yes. So
1: how do you perform? And like Steve Norris always says, you know, his definition is, um, you know, the ultimate competitor is somebody who can perform that technique, but under pressure. So it now becomes a skill, but under pressure, um, well-fatigued consistently, essentially, right. is what he's saying. And and you've got to be able to replicate that performance in a variety of conditions and be able to actually execute it properly and intelligently because there's options out of every piece of technique. That's the, that's like an individual skill, they call it in hockey. Should call it should be called individual technique. Yeah. But the, the individual skill... The, the tactic part of that now is the thought process applied in a realistic setting. Cause you have to make decisions and it's not just a rote decision. You've got to read the pressure. You've got to read the support. And now you've got to execute mm-hmm. the best decision based on all that. So a that's perfect,
0: the- a perfect example of that is the, uh, the toe drag play on attack where a player is trying to practice a toe drag to beat a defender and get a shot on net now uh we will see coaches uh and, and development people go on the ice for you know half an hour 45 minutes in practice and walk kids through you've seen it the pattern drills the toys on the ice we well, you know what adam Oates has said uh, on a podcast a couple of years ago on uh, 32 thoughts with um jeff merrick and uh, elliot friedman about get the toys get the freaking toys off the ice and um getting, uh, forcing kids to to practice a solitary component over and over and over again. When we know that deconstructing doesn't work, people will forget what they've done from week to week, let alone from hour to hour, that there's no application, there's no decision-making, there's no variability, there's no competitiveness, there's no challenge. It's just practice going around that cone or make a toe drag play at the cone, right? Toe drag the puck, pull it back, well, maybe that has its place in the off-season, you know, in your driveway, in your garage. Yeah, in the
1: off-season or, or on your own, like or on your or own, during right. the season. Outdoor like, rink, get the ice, practice your toe right. drag.
0: Like the videos or the, the talk about Connor Bedard and how many shots he took, you know, off the ice, you know, mm-hmm. against the garage. And as a kid, hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of, of shots that he took to develop the, the shooting technique. It wasn't done in any one drill in practice you know? Um, so we're, we're, we're really discussing technique versus skill. We shouldn't be doing technique in pra- and even if you know how to teach technique, don't do it in practice.
1: I think, you, you know, like I, I really think as a coach in a team sport, when you have your players together, you need to practice the things that require players together.
0: Right. Sure, like why waste time
1: on deliberate practice with technique when you've got 15 players on the ice, right? To me, that's a waste of ice time. If you oh. want to separate that out and you want to rent an ice time and make it a deliberate practice technique practice, and you hire somebody and bring them in or you better yet you send them out to their place. So they've got to get all the ice and the hassle, but it's going to cost you money to get on the ice, to do technique. Yes. How many kids, mm-hmm on any team, unless you're at the top tier. And even, even on the top tier of all the age groups, uh, uh, Richard, the, the kids we've, we've talked about this, the element of fun, like until you hit 15, 16 years old and you start to mature, like your brain starts to mature to understand the concept around what is deliberate practice? Well, it sucks. And by definition, deliberate practice is not enjoyable. If you look at Erickson's work yes, right. on expertise, over deliberate and over practice, and over surgery, and over again, yes. repetition, yes. and it sucks. And we talked about it at the start, off the top, with USA Hockey, Hockey Canada, we're trying right. to recruit, we're trying to retain, and we're trying to keep people in hockey throughout their lifespan up until active for life in beer league. Yes. Um, and not quitting at any time because it sucks. So we need that element of fun to play hockey. The top level, top end level kids will emerge organically out of all these processes, especially if you have fun and you're using games. Like, they'll keep coming back. And yeah. as they get older, as they hit 15, 16, and they start to excel, now is the time where if you start to get them to make more uh practice time available for deliberate practice either a specialist or whatever home sport homework on their own good because now they understand that yeah, you know what if i want to get to the next level i want to make the the double a the single a double AA, a triple a team next year i need to separate myself from the pack and i've got to get better and a big part of that is technique because once i get my technique going now i can put it into an environment to show that I can execute that technique in a competitive environment, which is the emergence of skill. So if we start to work and focus on technique at fricking Timbits, like I see a lot of people do in mm-hmm. station work, we're mm-hmm. going to work on stopping to the left and we're going to work on a snowball. Well, yeah. Okay. I understand the, the, the rationale, but if we just shut up and let the kids like climb on obstacles, chase each other, tag games, Uh, obstacle courses, little shinny games. You know what? Yeah, maybe at the start, they're going to use the other kids, the other objects and the boards as constraints to stop. And they're going to smoke themselves. They're going to fall down. But you know what? Organically, they're going to figure out how to freaking stop. They're going to figure out how to get up off the ice. They're going to figure out how to work a little bit of, of a pivot in or a backwards skate in. Or maybe we put the constraint in. Kids, to play this game, you have to skate backwards all the time as they hit seven, eight, nine years old, right? I'm not teaching them backwards skating. I'm just saying. Well, you backwards gotta... tag
0: is one thing I've seen coaches exactly. do that. Perfect. And it works miracles. I've, yes. I've used
1: it. It's amazing yes. through the Hockey Canada Skill Academy. It's Absolutely. outstanding. So if you disguise learning through games intentionally, right? the kids are going to have fun. It's going to be memorable. And you're going to achieve way more than telling a kid, Okay, what's the attack position? Bend your knees, you right. know, knees over right. toes, shoulders over knees, 46.5% yes. yeah. degrees, and now we're going to skate backwards. Well, that's going to go in one ear and out the other. You've lost them in 10 seconds. Play backwards tag. So that's the art of coaching. We need to apply
0: it. So in conclusion, therefore, Mr. Dean. You got me fired up on a Saturday. I evening. I got, got you liter. fired only up. only
1: got one liter of coffee in me, Richard. And yes, I know, I know.
0: A couple of things that uh, we got out of this that uh, I hadn't expected. One was grill, game-like drill. I'd never heard that before. That's from that volleyball coach, USA, John volleyball, Kessel, coach. Yeah. USA volleyball John Kessel, yeah. Great blog under USA Volleyball.
1: John Kessel. K-E-S-S-E-L. There's a lot of great coaches out there named John, come to think of it.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, the other one is uh, that you came up with is make learning sticky. Yeah. Well, but I that... did Dan and Shepheath, I've just co-opted their work all right you co-opted well made- wherever it came from it's really cool and well then i'm the- sure
1: they, they co-opted it from somewhere but made right. to stick why some ideas survive and others die right made-
0: okay Disguised learning we discussed uh while well, you threw that out which is good uh the gardener cannot actually grow tomatoes she can only foster an environment in which plants do so which is really important for the the ecological dynamics of what we do we talked about constraints of course uh and the beer game where you're going to have a beer every time you hear the word constraints um (laughs) we talked about uh, teaching games for understanding a little bit about observation yes as Yogi Berra said you can observe a lot by watching coaches don't do a lot of observation they're wrapped up in their own lives and their own teams it's really hard i get it but i think it's really important for coaches to take a couple of hours a week and watch other practices. Are you going to watch your own
1: bloody practice? Well, your own,
0: yeah, your own bloody practice as well, but watch what other teams do, what other coaches do. What's the approach? How are they using space and whistles and toys and and whatnot? Variability, very important in terms of uh, getting the most out of the kids. And uh, there was a quote here that from a guy named Wolfgang uh, Schollhorn, Mm -hmm. who uh, did a a study, and of course, everybody's done a study. Uh, If we want to have extraordinary performance, we need to train extraordinarily. In other words, the same old, same old, same old, just doesn't cut it. Not anymore, but never did, really, in order to, to get the most out of our kids. That it's the drawing out, not just the putting in, sage on the stage versus the guide on the side. Dean, we've reached the end. Yes. Do you have any final thoughts? I do about terminology.
1: No. Well, and I I think to to close it off, like what you said with um, Wolfgang Schollhorn on differential learning. Yes. Um, you you mentioned earlier on how a coach will start this, the the practice with the same yes. same activity, the same drill, Right. and. Right. I think you can still do that, Richard, but if you understand your intention and your constraints, you can make slight changes to that same <clears throat> activity and move it into a game or whatever it is, but you can start to add, okay, so we know the setup, we've named the drill, but here's the option today.
0: Well, that's it. You've you've added variability to it, you've taken the same exactly. template exactly. and you've made tweaks to it to force the players to think about something a little bit differently, the route that we did before, we're now doing something a little bit different or we're adding to it as, or as I've said to coaches so many times, never do the same thing the same way twice in a practice.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Change, make a change.
1: Variability, differential learning. Yes. Same type of idea. And I agree. So I just wanted to, that, that was the last thing I wanted.
0: All right. Thank you, Dino. Appreciate your time again. And, uh, nice to have you back on and we're uh, got some other things planned for the show in the future. Thank you to listeners. If you have any questions, of course, you can reach me at Richard at grassroots, You've been listening to grassroots, the minor hockey show podcast on the language of coaching and how much it's changed and how important this, this terminology is. Thanks Dean. Thank you. All right. We'll be in touch. Take care, everyone. See you around.